You guys can open up your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And when I say 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you guys probably think this is going to be a rapture message, right? Revelation 4, 13 through 18. I'm sorry to disappoint. It's not. All right. Uh, We're going to talk about the section before the rapture passage that talks about how we should be living to make ourselves ready for when Jesus returns for us. And that is in, if you know the Lord, if you've invited him in your life, if you've received him as your savior, John 1:12, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. You, you invite him in, you have that, that ability to be able to receive him and choose him today. And um, if that's the case, then the rapture's in your future. One day, in the twinkling of an eye, there will be a shout of the archangel and we will be in the presence of God. So what kind of people should we be? That's what I want to talk about today. How should we live knowing that that event is going to take place? I want to say, first of all, thank you to Pat for giving me a call, asking me to come down and share with you guys. I always enjoy it so much when I'm here. Uh, Pat has been a really good friend of mine for close to 30 years now. And uh, we've been, we, we, were, we traveled to conferences together and uh, it's been my pleasure and privilege to know him and to come alongside of him in ministry here and him alongside of me in ministry there as well. And um, I love his heart. I love his straightforward character. He's on our board in Calvary Tucson. He's one of our elders on the elders board in Calvary Tucson. And um, I, I love that because he's the kind of guy who is not just gonna say yes. He's the kind of guy that's going to hold me to account and will say, why? Why do you want to do this? Or, why, Robert, do you want to do this? That's kind of how Pat says it. <laughs> so anyway, love you. I love your pastor. You guys are really blessed. Love your worship, right? Rob here is great. The whole team, what a good, what a good job. And leading us before the Lord. And um, so let's pray. Let's ask God to bless our Bible study and then let's get after it. Father, we want to thank you for your word, the richness of your word. It is powerful, deep, meaningful. It works in our hearts and produces when it falls on a good heart, 30, 60, and 100-fold. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God, the woman of God, would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. So we want to approach your word today. We want to hear from you. And Lord, we, want to, we pray that you would help us to be able to live what we find here. And we thank you for this In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. I wanna begin by reading you the two rapture passages that we find in the Bible. This is, of course, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. So we'll start in 1 Thessalonians, where it says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And then Paul writes again to the Corinthians, and he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. There's a lot of questions about the rapture, and it's not surprising to us that it's a mystery. And the fact that he starts this passage with, Behold, he's going to tell you something that's surprising. You don't say, Behold, I went to lunch at Peacock's today. First restaurant from Sierra Vista that came to my mind. One of my favorite restaurants too, by the way. Um, But it's something that's gonna be significant that follows that. So he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And the same as in 1 Thessalonians, he means die. When a Christian dies, they close their eyes, but they will open them again in the presence of God. They'll open them in a resurrected body one day. 
Uh, we shall not all sleep, but some of us shall be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise incorruptible and we shall be changed. This corruptible will put on incorruptible and this mortal shall put on immortality. So that is our future. That we will be there. For those of you who have made commitments to Christ and if, if you haven't or if you aren't seriously walking with Christ today, I wanna give you an opportunity to be able to do that at the end of the study. But, but this is our future. One day, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord there. And also, the Bible tells us when, we, when he returns, we will be with him, Colossians tells us. We're, we're gonna be riding with him on that day. When that sky parts and Jesus comes through with all of his glory, the Bible says to take vengeance on those who do not believe. We are going to be with him, clothed in white linen, riding horses behind him. The host of heaven in white linens that's mentioned is us who are in the church. So Paul here talks, before he gets to this passage in chapter four, he talks about two things that we should be doing. I wanna spend a lot of time on one and less time on another. So let me just kind of read this and we'll get to the topic. And then I wanna talk about how we can do this that the Lord's asking us to do. And then we'll come back and we'll look at what else he says in this passage on the topic. And the first topic is sexual purity. He's gonna talk about brotherly love at the end, but sexual purity in the beginning. So he says, um, verse one, chapter four of 1 Thessalonians. Then brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. And that's in this passage a couple of times, that they would abound more and more. Remember, Paul was only there for three weeks when he planted this church. He's writing them a letter a few months later that they would abound more and more. Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God. This is God's will for us. This was God's will for them. Your sanctification. You are sanctified when you are saved positionally. You stand before Christ sanctified. But we have to walk in this world. And our sanctification grows as we mature. We start to work out sin difficulties in our lives and to give God purity, and it should be on a constant process of, of growing. Your sanctification, he says, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. He very clearly says, this is God's will from you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we live certainly in a time where that is difficult. We live in a time where access to pornography on the internet is is. is there all the time. And so the church, as the church, we should understand that and find out what has God given us that we can make sure that we are victorious in this area of our lives. Because sexual sin or, or, or sexual temptation is strong. And it's strong for a reason. I love what Chuck Smith used to say about sexual sin. He would say, it has to be strong, otherwise we wouldn't have children. So he just kind of lays it out there. God wants us to have kids. And so the sexual, you know, attraction needs to be strong. But remember, the Bible says, it is not to rule over you, but you are to rule over it. So there's a way that you can use your sexuality to glorify God. And that's what is the will of God for us. He goes on to say that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So that's the first thing that I want to talk about possessing our own vessel in sanctification and honor. And I want to do this by looking at some passages that tell us six things 
that help us to be able to overcome sin. I want to start by talking about the destructive nature of sin. You, as a believer, don't want sin in your life because it is destructive. Now, I realize that you're tempted. I realize that, that you might have temptations and feel like, I do want that. But in the end, you're not going to want it because you don't want the destruction that comes from sin. Not only is sin destructive, it is also deceptive. And sin is not sin because God decided to make something sin. People have this idea that God just decided the things that were fun were sin. That's not true. Sin is sin because it has within it something inherent, inherent that makes it sin. That's, that's, and it's deceptive, it's destructive. And so people are deceived by sin all the time. You may very well be under the deception of sin today. The, 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 the sin of pride, we get into our lives and we are, we are deceived by it. And Hebrews tells us that we have to be careful that we don't fall under the deceptive nature of sin. So sin is destructive and it's gonna bring destructive destruction in your life. And James chapter one tells us when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And this is why we don't want it in our lives and we don't need it. We may think we do because we may be, we may be attached to this world. We may be sowing too much to the things of this world and this world is sensual. And because of that, there are things that we desire and that has to be broken. And I wanna to talk to you today about how to break that. So God tells us a few things about how to overcome sin. Number one, your temptation in sin is not uncommon. Your temptation to sin is not uncommon. Everybody faces it. Couple of verses. The first one is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. There it is, it's common. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. This means that when you give in to sin, maybe because you've sown to the flesh and from the flesh you're reaping corruption, you may feel like there was no way I could get away with not sinning. I couldn't have done it, but you could. There's, there's a way of escape. And then he says, but with the temptation, we'll also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So he's not gonna tempt you beyond what you can bear. And then he's gonna provide a way of escape. And when you are being tempted, you look for the door. You're like, what, where in here has God given me that ability to be able to escape? So you are not facing something that is uncommon. It is common for all of us. The second thing is in Hebrews 4.15, where it talks about Jesus, and this is interesting. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. He became a man. He walked in the flesh. He sympathizes with us. It says, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested or tempted as we were, yet without sin. So the temptation isn't sin. This is really important to understand because sometimes people are tempted and they just feel like, well, I blew it. I was tempted. But no, the temptation isn't sin. Jesus was tempted every way we are and yet without sin. It's accounted to Martin Luther. I've heard other people say that, that someone else said it, but I'm just gonna use Martin Luther because that's the way I've heard it. Martin Luther said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. There are temptations, but you are to possess your vessel with honor while we're waiting for the return of Jesus. 
The second thing to understand about sin that the Bible teaches us about temptation and sin is that we need to prepare before we are tempted. We know we are gonna be tempted. All of us will be tempted in the future. Not necessarily in sexual sin. The context of the passage we're covering is sexual sin. But we're gonna be tempted. We're gonna be tempted to think more of ourselves than what we ought to. We're gonna be tempted for selfish ambition. Uh, we're gonna be tempted in, in sexual sin. We're gonna be tempted. So if you know that, then you wanna be ready. You wanna prepare yourself now so that when you face that temptation, you're able to defeat it. So here's a couple of things that I think will help us when we face temptation. Number one, the Bible says in the Old Testament, Psalms 37, four and five, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he shall bring it to pass. So he says, if we delight in God, if tomorrow you say, you know what? I'm, I'm done delighting in the world. I'm done delighting in, in my own selfishness. I want to delight in God. And all you've got to do is delight in him more tomorrow than you delight in him today. Just need to be making progress in that way. You don't need to go, I'm, I'm, I need to be the person tomorrow who loves God more than anybody else. Just need to go, I'm just going to delight in God more tomorrow than today. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to give the day to God. I'm going to delight in him. He is altogether delightful. And you can delight in God and God will give you the desires of your heart. That means you're not gonna be desiring sinful things. If you delight in God, you're sowing to the spirit and you're not desiring the things of the flesh. This is a way for you to change your desires because if you have an ungodly desire, you delight yourself in God, God changes that. The New Testament passage for that is in John 15, seven. It says the same exact thing. Delight yourself in the Lord to give you the desires of your heart. Here's what Jesus said, John 15, seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. Notice the connection again. You abide in Christ, whatever you desire will be done for you. So you delight in God and your desires change. You abide in Christ and his word abides in you and your desires change. So what desires do we want? As we're standing here now, and looking into our future. If we delight in the world, because the world is sensual, sexual, then we're gonna desire the things from the world. If we delight in God, we're gonna desire the things that God wants for us. If we abide in Christ, we're gonna receive the things that God wants for us. Listen to the, this uh, temptation in Matthew 4, one through three, the temptation of Jesus. Then the spirit, um, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which is interesting. We're taught in the Lord's Prayer to pray, deliver us from the evil one and do not lead us into temptation. The spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's gonna go face the devil in temptation and walk away victorious. And you and I are to prepare ourselves by praying daily because the Lord's Prayer is a daily prayer. I'm not saying you just say it over and over again. I'm saying you pray it and mean it, that these are the kind of things you should be praying for each day. One of them is for your daily bread. He didn't say give us this week our weekly bread or give us this month our monthly bread, but provide for me today and then deliver me from the evil one. That should be a regular prayer in our lives. This is part of us preparing for where we wanna be, sanctification and, and possessing our vessels with honor. And also pray that God would not lead us into temptation. And you say, well, why would, he, why would he do that? 
because God's testing us, because God's revealing things in our lives. God doesn't tempt anyone, but we're to pray that God doesn't lead us into temptation. So that's part of our preparation. Now it goes on to say here in this passage, this is Matthew 4, 1 through 3. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So he tempted him. And of course, Jesus responds with the word of God, right? So when you know what's in the word of God, you know what the Bible says, that gives you ability to be able to stand against the temptation. When you are tempted with some sexual sin and you remember that the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, every good and perfect gift, that's not a good and perfect gift. Everything you need, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. The more you know God's word, the better it is. So one more, and this is Matthew 26, 40 and 41. Remember, we're talking about being prepared for when we're gonna face temptation, let's just say tomorrow. What do we wanna do in the morning? So, or so sometime during the day that we can be prepared when we face temptation. Matthew 26, 40 and 41. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray. Here it is lest you enter into temptation. Watching and praying helps you that you don't enter into temptation. The temptation may be there. So are you watching? Are you praying? He says, for the spirit indeed is, is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me add one more in this section, if I can, just kind of adding to my notes here. Uh, and I'm gonna quote this passage in a little while, but for preparing for temptation to be victorious, the Bible says, if you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the flesh are more than just sexual sin. So if you walk in the spirit, if you say, tomorrow I'm gonna delight in God, I'm gonna abide in Jesus, God's word is gonna abide in me, I'm gonna watch and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna walk in the spirit. I'm gonna walk in the spirit, I'm gonna give the day to God and I'm gonna walk in the spirit. You have a promise from God that if you're walking in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now right there is enough for, for a whole message, right? We could just take that, we could, but I got more. So our third, our third point is you have a battle within you, an inner struggle. Each one of us do. If somebody says to me, I don't ever struggle with sin, I say, liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Everybody has this struggle inside of them. Listen to Galatians 5, 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the spirit, here's the passage, and, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So, so how many of us say amen to that? We got the flesh battling against the spirit and I don't do the things that I wish. This is akin to the passage in Romans 7 where Paul says, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's going on inside of us. So there's this struggle going on. Also in Romans 8, 6 and 8, for to be carnally minded is death. Carniasada, right? Carnally minded, it's the flesh, Okay. <laughs> That's what, carnal, that's what carnal is, is thinking about the flesh. Again, not only sexual temptation, but just living for the moment, living for what you, you gain, food, you know, just the flesh. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded 
is life and peace. So if we walk in the spirit, we put our mind on the things of the spirit, then it's life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You are never going to please God by walking in the flesh. You have to walk in the spirit to do that. And Jesus said, those who worship me are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. Meaning you have to have your spirit brought to life. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. He who was born of the flesh is flesh, and he who was born of the spirit is spirit. Your spirit comes to life, and now you walk in the spirit and you're able to please God. The fourth thing the Bible teaches us about temptation, remember we have six. The fourth is, um, where does temptation come from? And this is James 1, 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. God may lead us in a way where we will be tempted. He's not tempting us. He's leading us. So we pray, don't lead us into temptation. But let no one say when I'm tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. God is not tempting you. God may bring a struggle, a, a trial, a difficulty into your life that God has a good purpose for. He wants, what does it say in 1 Peter? I wanna make sure, yeah, I have that passage down here, so let me hold on <laughs> before I give you that one. Um, but uh, God may lead you into a difficulty and Satan may use it to tempt you. God wants to use it to do good things inside of you and to build character in you. He wants the perseverance to bring about good things in you. That's why he's giving us trials the enemy wants to use it for temptation and, and often does. So James 1, 14 and 17 says this. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when his desires has conceived, he gives birth to sin. So sin comes from our desires and our enticement. The, the enemy's the tempter and he wants to tempt us, but he's working with something already. You can't say the devil made me do it. We hear that way too often. We are enticed. If, if it wasn't, you would not be enticed by it. If you do any fishing, I do a little largemouth fishing. We throw lures out, hoping to attract a fish. It promises that it's a good, tasty little fish, but it's got hooks in it. That's exactly what the devil does. He throws it out there. And if you don't have it inside of you, then you're not gonna bite. But because it is inside of us, you're like, oh, look at that. Next thing you know, I'm caught. Look, there's a boat. It says, um, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. But then it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. So I told you in the beginning, you don't want sin in your life. You might think you do, and you might be trapped in a cycle that brings temptation back up again and again because you're involved in things that are in the world. But every good and perfect gift comes from God. And sin is not a good and perfect gift. And so what you want comes from him. And I love that that's right at the end of the passage that talks about sin bringing death. In 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, remember we're talking about where sin comes from. Be sober, be vigilant, because your enemy or your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by the brotherhood in the world. Again, we're not alone. We can confidently say that we need to be watchful and sober. 
The fifth thing the Bible teaches about temptation is that the battle is in our mind. And we can spend a lot of time on this. When, when Satan tempted Jesus, he questioned God. If you are the son of God, he brought doubt. Same thing with Eve. Did God say that you couldn't eat of any of these trees in the garden? What did God, what did God say? You can eat of all the trees in the garden freely, but at the tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat. So then Satan says, has God said you can't eat of any of these? So he, he assaults the goodness of God. And she says, well, he said we could, but the tree in the middle, we can't. So she leaves out part of God's word. He wants to change it. She leaves out freely. So now she's not, she doesn't have the same gratitude she had before. So she's like, yeah, we can eat of any of them, but not the one in the middle. So all of this is a battle that goes on in the mind. Listen to what Galatians 6, 7, and 9 says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will reap. For he who sows to the flesh, from the flesh will reap corruption. He who sows to the spirit, from the spirit will reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Again, the promise. If you're sowing to the flesh, then it's not a surprise that you're going to be reaping things from the flesh. But if you're sowing to the spirit, if you're taking time to do things that are edifying for you, if you are listening, watching things, doing things daily that edify you. I'm not saying you don't do, I'm, we're, we're not legalistic. We're not saying you can't do things that are neutral. Certainly don't want to do things that are sinful, but we're not saying you can't do things that are neutral, but you got to ask yourself, is this really edifying for me? And if it's neutral and it doesn't end up edifying you, there may need to be a change. No one knows ourselves like we do. We don't want to tell people what you should do or you shouldn't do, but we want to be wise. In, uh, in James 1, in our, in, in, man. all right, where am I at? Okay, um, so the sixth thing is that we will have victory. We can have victory over this inner body. And I already jumped ahead to the verse, by the way, that I just read you, was that we would. And that's that don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will reap. And so if we sow to this, the flesh, from the flesh we will reap corruption. And then back to a verse that I read earlier, no temptation has overtaken you except as common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. A promise of God that there is victory that is available for you. Uh, you, can, you can contrast, and you can do this on your own sometime, contrast the temptation of Jesus to the temptation of Eve. Look at her failure, and that at the end, she saw that it was good for food, she saw it was desirable to make one wise, and she took it and she ate it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And she took those and ate them. And she fell. Now, let's go back to what Paul was saying here when he talks to them about knowing how to possess their bodies uh, in honor. He goes on in verse 5 to say, Not in passion or in lust, like the Gentiles do, who do not know God that no one should take advantage or defraud his brother in this manner. Now, here's where Paul goes with this. He starts by talking about us possessing our vessels well, but then he says, don't let anyone defraud you in this manner. Meaning, there are always those who will say that sexual sin isn't sin. There are always those, there, there are those who will say, well, it's not fornication. Well, you know what? You're dating somebody. And you're like, yeah, it's all right if we do this and you are defrauding someone, it is in, in the Christian realm, if you are trying to get another Christian 
to be involved with you sexually. You're dating, you're trying to get them to be involved with you sexually. That is predatory activity or predator at that point. You are defrauding someone. You're saying, this is okay for us to do when God's will for you is to abstain from sexual immorality. And so he says um, that no one should defraud a brother in this matter. So no one should say, it's okay. It's okay to be involved in it. Unfortunately, preachers are doing that today. Unfortunately, churches are doing that today because they're accepting and receiving um, homosexuals. They're justifying it. They're tolerant of it. And they are defrauding because that's not what the Bible says. It goes on to say here, because the Lord is an avenger of all such. If someone's defrauded sexually by someone else, God is the avenger of all such. That's a pretty scary passage. God's saying, if you take advantage of another person sexually, God's gonna take vengeance on you. Jesus said, and this has a couple different applications. If you hurt one of these children, first of all, he talks about children, actual children. If you hurt these children, it would be better for you if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were cast into the sea. He's not saying that's what's gonna happen to you. He's saying that would be better. Rather than hurt the child, just go tie a millstone around your neck and cast yourself into a sea, because that would be better. Then he also says for new believers, for baby Christians, that if you defraud them or you take advantage of them, the same thing. He, he uses it in two different places. But that's really important for us to understand. And I just wanna say that if you're here today and your temptation is uh, is like a predator, that you would try to get someone to do something, trying to seduce them, trying to groom them for some sexual activity, that God is the one who will avenge them on you if you're doing such activity. And I realized, you know, you say, well, I don't know, we're all Christians here, maybe you shouldn't be talking about these things. Well, Paul does first, Paul brought it up first, all right? <laughs> but second, think about all of the Christian leaders that have fallen, so many of them. So many Christian leaders that have fallen into sexual sin. And I, I won't start naming them now, but well-known men, well-known pastors. And if that's happening for men that stand and teach, then it's also happening in churches. And I can tell you that sexual predators look at churches to be able to come in and take advantage of people. They, they often act overly Christian. Oftentimes they'll be just like, Oh, you know, bless you, brother. Just oh, love God so much. They just are over, you know? So that you, when you see something that doesn't look right, you're like, yeah, but they love God so much they couldn't possibly be doing that. Listen, if, if you see something that you think that's odd from anyone, from Sunday school teacher, from uh, a youth worker, from the pastor who leads your church, and I tell this to our congregation, you see me doing something that looks odd, I want you to bring it to the elders. I want you to. I want that accountability. And I would rather chase out something that's wrong than have something go on because we blind our eyes. And there are a lot of churches, this happens often, when a predator is revealed. I'm thinking of a couple of them. I'm thinking of one where the senior pastor was a predator. And then when it was revealed, a lot of people came forward. Oh yeah, mm, I knew something was wrong. I was, I, he was out by the bookstore and he touched this lady's back that wasn't his wife. And I just thought that was odd. Or, you know, I saw him talking with somebody constantly outside in the park. I just thought it was odd. 
Well, now is not the time to bring that up. The time to bring that up is before. And that may be very, very hard. But it would be better to, to chase those things down. If there's something that takes place that doesn't look right, then just approach it. Hey, approach them first. Tell them, you know, this looked weird to me. It looked odd. I don't, you know, I don't know if anything is going on, but I just wanted you to know that it looked odd to me. And I want to, you know, tell them. You're going to tell the elders of the church. And just so that they can look in on it. Or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell Pat or I'm going to tell Jack or, or, or whoever it is that you would feel most comfortable to going and telling them. But we do not want sexual predators in the church. And they know that at times we can be very gracious and forgiving because we have been forgiven, right? A lot. And we don't want to be hypocritical. But here he says, God is the avenger of such who defrauds the brother in this manner. And he's talking about sexual sin. He goes on to say, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we are forewarned, you uh, and testify. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects that this does not reject men, but rejects God. So anyone who rejects it. So gals, if you're dating a guy and he's like, it's okay for us to be involved sexually. He's rejecting God. He's not rejecting man. There, I'm going to read verse 8 again. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject men, but God, who has also given us the Holy Spirit. So God's given us the Holy Spirit that we would be able to be victorious over all of these things. And we can find it. And if I were going to summarize that section before we go on to the next section, it would be delight yourself in God, abide in Him, let His Word abide in you, walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, sow to the things of the Spirit, and you will reap the things of the Spirit. Don't sow to the things of the flesh. So may God give you that desire tomorrow. Again, not, you're gonna take steps. The Bible says our outer man's perishing, to which we don't necessarily like, but we say amen to it, we understand that. But our inner man is being renewed day by day. Oftentimes we think if I can't be that spiritual giant tomorrow, then I don't know what I'm gonna do. But that's not how it works. You don't, not a spiritual giant one day, spiritual giant the next day, that doesn't happen. You day by day are growing. The inner man is being renewed day by day. And so tomorrow you can be closer to Jesus than you are today. And the next day you can be closer to Jesus than you were. And as you do that day by day, it's very doable to suddenly find yourself mature and strong in Christ and able to face temptation and walk away from it. Now, the second thing that he talks about is predictable. And this is again, before he gets into this rapture passage is in verse nine. He says, but concerning brotherly love, we have no need that I should write to you. He says, okay, so we talked about sexual sin. They needed that. Uh, Thessalonica was a Roman city. There's a lot of sexual sin that went on in Roman cities, the bathhouses and whatnot, and they were all there in Thessalonica. Thessalonica had about 200,000 people. But now he speaks to them about something he wants to commend them on, and indeed has done it earlier in the book. He commended them for their love. He says, your brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, I have a question about that particular verse, verse 9. When he says, you are taught by God to love one another, is he talking about Jesus? Is he calling Jesus God here? Because Jesus is the one who said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Maybe, maybe he's just talking about God the Father, perhaps, which teaches us to love as well. But why, why was it a new covenant? 
We were told in Deuteronomy to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're told in Leviticus to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you would love one another. Why is it a new commandment? We have that commandment in Leviticus. Because in the commandment in Leviticus, you are to love people the way you love yourself. It's very narcissistic. I love myself. And therefore, when people treat me wrong, I know it. And so I need to treat people the way I want to be treated. It's, it's, it's self-centered. And this helps me. I'm just going to be honest with you. It helps me. It helps me be a better driver. <laughs> when I treat people on the road the way that I want to be treated. It helps me, it helps me in, in, in all aspects of my life. It helps me when I leave a bathroom. I'm going to just be honest with you. Not to leave it a mess because I don't want to walk into a mess when I'm in a public bathroom, right? I don't want to walk into a mess. So I want to make sure I leave it how I want it when I walk in. So those, that's good. But here's what Jesus said. So if you go, well, I love people the way I love myself. Okay, that's good. But Jesus added to that. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you would love one another the way I have loved you. So how does God love you? How does, how does Jesus love me? And I'm supposed to love people not the way I love myself now, but he took it to a whole nother level. It's the way that I love, that Jesus loves me. I'm supposed to love you. You're supposed to love me. We're supposed to love one another. It's a, it's a radical way to live, to live like Jesus loves us, but that's what this brotherly love is. He says, and indeed, verse 10, and indeed you do so towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. That's the area that they were in. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. He says, you guys are already loving the brethren. That's all good. But we urge you that you increase more and more. May the love that we have for one another grow and increase more and more. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciple by the love that you have for one another. So a lot of people walk into this church and they don't have any background in church. Some of you guys came from other churches and you have a good foundation on doctrine. So when you came in, you were looking for certain things. You were looking for the way they talked about the resurrection. You were looking for the way they talked about the Bible, the word of God. You know what is important in a church because you've been in one and you know. But what about when someone walks in that has never been in a church? They just come in off the streets and maybe that was you. If you see love in this place, you're gonna know that we are his disciples. They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. It is the, it is the key and the heart of evangelism for a church. If a church goes, I'm gonna love people. I'm gonna love these people in this church. I'm gonna love them the way Christ loves me. It, it, that, that would solve so many problems, so many little bickerings and fightings and tensions that go on in the church if we really do love one another in that way. So he says, I, I encourage you that you, um, brethren, that you increase more and more. Earlier he had said that he wanted them to abound more and more in their fighting against sexual sin, in their sanctification, that you would abound more and more in your sanctification. So that's to be daily, sanctification to be growing. Now we know our love for one another is to be growing as well. That you also aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own business. I, I, love, I love this section right before the rapture of the church. Because, and, and in 2 Thessalonians, are you guys there yet? Are you guys in 2 Is Pat teaching that? Where are you at in 2 Thessalonians? Chapter two? Okay, okay, good. So there's a whole section coming after that where Paul tells people, get a job because they thought Jesus is coming back. I don't have to work. 
And he tells them in 2 Thessalonians at the end of it, if you don't work, you don't eat. So he's getting real practical with them. And here he's getting practical as well. He says, lead a quiet life. The Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Sometimes, especially for us who can be prone to selfish ambition, we can do a lot of things out of selfish ambition. But we're not supposed to do anything out of selfish ambition. We're supposed to put other people's interests above our own. And so he says that you aspire to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we command you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may be lacking nothing. He knows where he's going in verse 13. He knows he wants to talk to them because there's some misunderstanding in Thessalonica that when someone dies, they aren't making it into heaven. I don't know what that misunderstanding was. I haven't been able to figure it out. Maybe it was a Roman thing. Maybe it was a Jewish thing. Maybe some of the Jews that were there were Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection. Do you remember that? The Sadducees talked to Jesus, didn't believe in a resurrection. So maybe there were just some with the thought when you die, they missed out on, on being with the Lord. They were bummed out about it. But he knows where he's going. And so he encourages them to walk properly towards those who are outside. To, to honor your own vessel to love one another in the church and let that increase and then to walk properly towards who are out, those who are outside and this is how we are to walk and live while we are waiting for Jesus to return for his church. And I don't know about you guys, but I, we are getting close. This whole COVID thing has accelerated what's happening in the world today and what's happening in America with all the totalitarianism that, that comes along with it is happening all around the world. It's not just in America. God's moving this world towards a one world government where the Antichrist will be seen. And you guys are probably talking about that in chapter two, right? There's a section right there on the Antichrist all of a sudden. And when we're heading towards it. So if, if there's ever a time to possess our vessels with honor, to love one another, and to walk properly towards those who are outside of the church, it's right now as we wait for Jesus to return. And I'm trusting, and I know Pat would say this too. I'm not saying Jesus is coming back next week. He might. <laughs> I'm not saying he is for sure. We could get a reprieve and God could push it down the road because God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's not slack concerning his promises, but that's what he desires. God wants more people to get saved. And so that's why he waits as long as he's waited. In fact, it says, and this will be, this will be it. Uh, it says in Matthew 24, that unless the days were shortened, no flesh would remain on the earth. What exactly does that mean? Could it be that God wanted to wait longer before he came back, but we're gonna destroy the earth? Maybe by war, maybe some other way. You know, maybe, maybe climate change, maybe. Maybe there's something where we destroy the earth and God's like, I gotta move up my timetable. But that's how long-suffering God is. That's how generous God is long-suffering. In the Old Testament, there was a guy by the name of Enoch. Enoch was a prophet, right? So Enoch has a son. Do you know what the name of his son is? Methuselah. What do we know about Methuselah? He was the longest man who ever lived, right? Methuselah's name means, this was given to him by his dad, we take it, the prophet. When he dies, it will take place. You can map it out. Go and do this. It's a good thing to do. Go and take from the time Adam is born, we get his days of life and we know how old he was when he had Seth. We know how old Seth was when he had his son. And so you can map this out. And you will come to Methuselah's death at the 500 mark of Noah, which is when the flood happened. When he died, it took place. 
So God has one of his prophets name his son. When he dies, it will take place. And then God says, I'm going to have him live longer than anyone else. That's why we're still here. Because God is gracious and good and wants people to come to Christ. And may we, may we strengthen ourselves. May you and I both walk in the spirit so that we do not fulfill the desires of the flesh. May we find that victory that God has given us. And may you wake up tomorrow and may God bring this memory to you that you would delight in him. If you just delight in God, if you just did that one thing, if you delighted in God, he would give you the desires of your heart. What an incredible promise. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we're able to take this passage and to consider these things that you told us and to know that your word tells us that we can have victory over sin, that we do not have to give into it. Forgive us when we do. Help us with the struggle and the strongholds that we have in our lives. And your, your weapons are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. And I pray, Lord, that there would be an encouragement here in this place and that that encouragement would be well-placed in you Help us to delight in you that we can abide in Christ and his word in us, that we can have the desires of our heart and they would be godly desires. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed for just a couple of minutes. I'm also gonna ask that no one would leave early. We're almost done. We'll sing a worship song here and dismiss you and this won't take long. But I do wanna give you an opportunity if you're here today and you have never received Jesus. Again, this is very biblical. I bring that up because there's people who fight against it. It's very, it, John 1, 12, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God. We know that God knocks and we open. We know John 6, says that God draws you and no one can come to the son unless the father draws him. So what you're doing now is a response to God. He's drawing you, he's telling you, he loves you, he wants you. And you're hearing his voice now and you can choose. If you don't want him in your life, you don't have to. You're given the choice. Choose you this day who you will serve. Choose life and live. But if you're here today and you've never invited Christ into your life, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand in a moment. But I'm also gonna ask someone else, and if we can have every head bowed, every eye closed at this point, maybe you, you've walked with the Lord before, but you walked away. You are no longer following him and serving him. You know things aren't right between you and him. And God's speaking to you clearly today. It's time to come back, son, daughter. He leaves the 99, he goes after the one. He loves you and he's drawing you back. And you find yourself here tonight when I'm giving you an opportunity to come back. And that's not by chance. It's because God's moving in your heart. So if you want to invite Christ into your life for the very first time or you want to come back to Christ today and you're ready to start living for him, then I'm going to ask you to do something simple. Just raise your hand. Right where you are now, I want to pray for you and then I want to pray with you. Just lift your hand up now. Lift it up high so I can see it. I want to take time to acknowledge your hand and then to pray with you. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Meaning, if you hear God's voice now, today is the day to be saved because you don't know if you'll hear it in the future. That's what Hebrews means when it says that. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear God's voice don't harden your heart, but be open to him. All right? Just gonna scan the room one more time. Just raise your hand. All right. Father, again, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you that we can spend time here together. Knit our hearts together. Help us love one another, be there for one another, bear one another's burdens, and help us love one another the way you love us. 
And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.